0: An AeroPeru Boeing 757-200 is taking off from Lima, Peru when the flight encounters a problem. What caused this flight to crash into the ocean just miles from the airport? <laughs>
1: Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick.
0: I'm Miranda. And I'm Chrissy. Hey.
2: Hello. This have... will probably be a shorter one tonight. Ish.
1: Your part will be short.
2: My part is very short. Also, welcome to our new patron, Dylan. Thanks, Dylan. Woo-hoo, Thank you. For being a patron.
1: A new $20 patron.
2: A new Australian $20 patron.
1: Flight crew. They
2: can be friends. <laughs> they can <laughs> yeah. be friends. So welcome. Thank you for being a patron. Thanks for liking the show. Uh, any other updates? Check out the newsletter. I guess. <laughs> stories of the month. This comes out at the end of October, early November. Thankful. Did we do thankful stories last year? Yes, we did thankful stories last year. You could so do it again. Maybe giving stories this year. So, what did you receive or give as it occurs to aviation?
1: Or, in general, a good story related to that?
2: Yeah. It doesn't have to be aviation, just. So that is
0: the general theme.
1: Yes. That is the general theme. We'll
2: read it anyway. Yes. Oh, we have a listener question. Well, what? Th- we do? do? It came in in the yes. email. We I can do forgot. it at the end of the episode.
1: I forgot. We do.
2: We do? We do. It's in the email. I was not alerted of this. I forgot. <laughs> but we will answer a listener question at the end of the episode. So stick around if you want to hear the answer to that. So, what
1: are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Aero Peru Flight 603.
0: Thank you to our patron, Danielle, for recommending this episode. Danny.
2: Thanks, Danny. Thanks.
0: Also, I would like to preface this episode. Miranda's going to figure it out real freaking quick.
2: Please?
1: Or they hope so. (laughs) Please, please,
0: for the love of God, figure it out. I, I
1: definitely think you probably will.
0: If you don't, our listeners will scream. Please refrain until my cued point in my script, at, we, at which I turn to you, is say, Miranda. What do you think it was? Okay,
2: <laughs> I will try to keep myself contained, contained <laughs> from shouting it the instant I figure it out.
1: All right. That said, it is going to be a bit confusing. This happened on October second of nineteen ninety six. This was a Boeing seven five seven two hundred.
0: The first time we've covered a seven five seven. It is. Yes. We've I know. never covered Over a 757
2: 100... before. My
1: favorite airplane. Well, one of them. Over 100 episodes, and we haven't... That's ah, just mind-blowing. That's crazy, because I can think of quite a few major <laughs> accidents with the 757. But, but
0: uh, trivia fact that we asked someone to find, if they could, here it is for you. That is the same kind of plane that is in our theme song. Wrong exact model, but it is a 757.
1: It is. Anyways, this 757 had the tail number November 5-2 Alpha Whiskey, and yes, it belonged to Lima, Peru. And yes, that is a United States tail number. The airplane This is this is just so confusing. Is not, this
2: like a cruise ship situation no. no where the no, airplanes no. like registered in a different country? Kind, well,
1: kind of. This is uh it's really confusing. I'm not going to dive too deep into this because it doesn't matter at all. Right. In okay. this case, actually, <laughs> but the airplane was uh, owned by a different company somewhere else in the world, leased to Aero Mexico, who sublet it to Aero Peru, and then Aero Mexico stepped out, and then it was directly leased from the other company. However, Aero Peru's headquarters also, for some reason, is in Mexico, but their dire- their operations are also. And... In... I'm just not going to go into that because it's not worth it. Okay? okay. All of that said, this flight was from. Are you ready?
0: Oh yeah, this is a f- oh, trip. Cool.
1: Miami to Quito and Ecuador, to Lima in Peru, to Santiago in Chile. So we just progressively get further south from Miami all the way down to Chile. The captain for today's flight was Eric Schreiber Ledron de Cuevara. But they, yeah, they just call him Eric Schreiber. He was 58 years old. He had 22,000 flying hours total. So he's definitely one of the most experienced we've talked about.
2: Yeah, not the most,
0: but
1: not one of the, the most. most. It's
0: up there. Anything over 20,000 hours, I'm like, good for you, boo. Yeah, good yeah. for you did a
2: lot, a lot of stuff. Good for you.
1: Yeah. Of which 1,520 hours were on the Boeing 757. The first officer was David Fernandez Revoredo. Right. They just call him David Fernandez throughout the report and the yes. episode. He was 42 years old. He had 8,000 hours total, of which 719 hours were on the 757. The first two legs of the trip were carried out normally all the way to Lima from Miami, where the airline is based. The plane had arrived in Lima with 180 passengers and nine crew, but 119 of those passengers disembarked the airplane in Lima, and the remaining passengers, plus the crew and the bags, were transferred to a different 757 to continue the rest of the trip. So it's kind of a weird thing to me, the fact that... So they carried all the way to to Lima. Majority of the passengers got off, but a handful were going on to Chile. And they kept the same flight number, but they moved them, the crew, and the bags to another airplane.
2: So the airplane that you talked about at the beginning is this airplane that they moved to.
1: Yes, the accident airplane is the airplane they're moving to. Okay, okay. A handful of passengers boarded in Lima as well, like Scratch new boarded, uh, to go to Santiago. The flight would have 61 passengers and 9 crew. The flight departed Lima... At 12.42 a.m.
0: Ugh. Ugh.
1: Yes. Weird times sometimes. Aviation is a 24-hour business. And it shows. The aircraft took off and began climbing normally. When the airplane reached V2 plus 10 knots. So V2 is a, their best airspeed to climb in the event that they lost one engine.
2: Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember us talking about it's this. It's one of their
0: three reference speeds. Yeah. Yes.
1: V2 is a pretty common one, and V2 plus 10 is just an extra safety. So when the airplane reached V2 plus 10 knots, the crew noticed that there were problems with their altimeter indication. Uh Uh-oh. Things are going to start start getting real confusing from here.
0: Uh Uh-oh. Really fast. For everyone, including them.
1: Yep. All the while, the flight flew off the coast out over the Pacific Ocean into the black of night. At 12.43 a.m. and 31 seconds, the crew received rudder ratio and mock speed trim warnings in the cockpit that kept repeating as they flew. 12.43 a.m. and 35 seconds, the crew briefly received a wind shear alert. 12.44 a.m. and 32 seconds, so about a minute later, the flight crew declared an emergency to the tower controller. At 12.46 a.m., the flight crew asked to be vectored by radar back to the airport. They were instructed to change frequencies to 119.7 for radar vectors as the tower air traffic controller does not have radar visibility that far off the coast of where they were so far. But they're changing to the approach controller, which has a much wider range of view out off the coast. Okay. The approach control gave the flight the vectors needed to set up for an ILS, or instrument landing system, approach to runway 15 back at Lima, which the crew had requested. They wanted the ILS. 12.47 a.m., the flight crew asked the air traffic controller to tell them their airspeed, as they were having problems with controls. 12.49 a.m., the flight crew stated that they were maintaining a heading of 205 degrees at 12,000 feet, which meant that they were still trying to fly away from the coast. So they were flying westbound, away from Peru. 12.50 a.m., the air traffic controller requested that the flight turn to a heading of 350 to try to get the flight to start getting back closer to the airport.
0: So north now.
1: Three minutes later, the air traffic controller informed the flight that they were on heading 330, flying parallel to the localizer and about to pass to the west of the Lima VOR. So they're still pretty far off the coast, but he's basically saying, look, you're basically directly parallel right now, east to west, with the VOR.
2: So, wait, let me let me get this straight. So they're having issues with their instruments.
1: Yes. You'll you'll see. It, there will be a lot more clarifying stuff here soon.
2: Okay. I'm confirming that. Yes. This, yeah, well, it feels like realizing they're not flying where they're supposed to be flying, that their instruments are not helping them whatsoever.
1: That part of it, amazingly, isn't part of it. Really? They are doing that on purpose. 12.54 a.m., the crew requested vectors again. This time, the air traffic controller suggested a heading of 360 degrees, and then the air traffic controller passed an in alternative instructions for completing the ILS procedure in case of communication failure. So in the event that they can't talk to them, basically they just want them to have a way of performing the ILS... 12:55 a.m the crew requested their altitude and speed be given by the air traffic controller until they were established and being guided by the localizer because they were having trouble reading their instruments at that moment the crew began getting overspeed and terrain alerts from the GPWS ground proximity warning system 1257 a.m. the air traffic controller was frequently reporting their ground speeds as indicated on his radar so he was using his radar to give them speed 1258 a.m. and 25 seconds the stick shaker activated indicating a stall from low airspeed. 1259 and 8 seconds the overspeed warning began sounding again in conjunction with the repetitive stall alarm. The crew had a discussion about which indication to believe. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: got it. I'm pretty sure I know what happened, yeah.
1: At 1 a.m., the flight crew reported to the air traffic controller that their airspeeds seemed to be continuously too high and they asked that Another airliner, or Aero Peru flight, in the area come find them and fly formation with them to help guide them back safely.
2: Can you please, like, get them to figure out their lives, please, because they can't do it by themselves.
1: Because they're looking out the window and seeing nothing but black, because it is night and they are over the ocean.
0: Question here that I had that I was saving for this episode. If this happened in the United States, would they scramble fighter jets?
1: They could. It would be the fastest way to deal with this. Cool. Thank you. Mm -hmm.
0: But real quick question. Have we covered this problem before? In a manner of speaking.
1: But not specifically.
0: Okay. Not exactly, but
2: yes. Okay. Yes. That answers my question.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you figured it out by now.
2: Yeah, I'm pretty sure I know.
1: Okay. The air traffic controller informed them that there was an Aero Peru 707 that was getting ready to depart that could come help them. At one oh two a.m., Aero Peru operations contacted the flight via the air traffic controller to ask the captain if the computer's systems were out of use. The first officer stated that none of the instruments were working properly, altimeter, airspeed, vertical speed indicator, and he stated that they had an overspeed warning, even though they had their engines at idle, and they did not appear to be slowing down. At 1.02 a.m. and 44 seconds, the terrain alarm began sounding again, even though the airplane was in a nose-up attitude. 1.03 a.m., the air traffic controller informed the flight that the other aircraft would be ready to take off in about 15 minutes to assist them. 1.03 a.m. and 31 seconds, the wind shear alarm is activated again three separate times. At that time, the flight crew alerted the air traffic controller that they were getting that terrain alert. At 1.04 a.m., the crew repeated their message about the terrain alarm to the air traffic controller and told him that their computers had gone haywire. At 1.04 a.m. and 32 seconds, the first officer suggested several times that they try climbing. The ground proximity warning system began sounding the sink rate alarm... The air traffic controller informed them that from what he could tell on his radar, the flight was flying at 10,500 feet. And that they were slowly making a turn to the west, away from the coast, and the airport. And they were 40 miles away from the airport at the time.
2: So, the problem I'm having is the theory that I think happened doesn't... Mm -hmm. I don't remember it affecting the GPWS...
1: We'll talk about it. That's
2: a good thing that you're pointing out right about. Now okay. please remember that. Okay. I'm glad you remember that. I was that. like, I don't remember it affecting the GPWS, but I'm glad we're going to talk about it. Because if it is what I am pretty sure it is what I think it is, I'm like, I don't remember it having that issue on the other flight well, we talked about. Spoiler alert, I wish the pilots had the same
0: train of thought as you did. Oh, good. Okay.
1: We'll get into it. The crew then asked if they were still over the sea, since they were getting a terrain alert from the GPWS, And the air traffic controller told them that they indeed were still over the ocean.
2: I feel like it should have been a red alert when the air traffic controller's like, you're 10,500 feet up. And they're like, but why is the GPWS going off? Because if they're over the ocean. We'll talk about it.
1: Yeah. Because there's a lot to this. Great. 105 a.m., the flight crew informed the air traffic controller that they had an indicated 370 knot airspeed and asked if they were slowing down. That was their indicated airspeed in the cockpit currently was 370 knots, which is way over speeding and no matter what condition you're in, the air traffic controller informed them that they were showing 220 knots on his radar.
0: So for reference, the speed that the air traffic controller is pulling is based on their change in position over time, not based on anything coming from the plane's transponder. Right. So based on where they are on the radar and how that changes every how many sweeps of the radar, that's how it's calculating their airspeed. So they're
1: using indicated airspeed in the cockpit, but he's using the ground speed based on the radar revolutions where it changes from one position to the next. Which
2: makes sense, because then they'd be like, you wouldn't be at this point on the radar Mm -hmm. if you weren't going this speed.
1: Yes. Right. Okay. 106 a.m., the air traffic controller informed the flight that he could still see them on his radar at 50 nautical miles away from the airport flying on a heading of 270 degrees away from the airport at 10,000 feet.
0: That is dead west.
1: For... That is dead west. 270 is dead west. Two seven zero is dead west. one oh eight a.m., the crew informed the air traffic controller that they were going to try to intercept the ILS to land and asked for their airspeed, as they now had no airspeed indication at all. So they went from seeing 370 knots to absolutely nothing.
2: Why would they ask for the ILS when they're so far away from the airport?
1: They want to set themselves up on something that they are hoping. Would get them back to the airport. Would or guide catch, the airplane. Catch
2: the airplane, basically. Yes.
1: Basically could guide them to the ground yeah. safely. And
2: basically what they're asking for is vectoring to get to there. Yes. But like, if none of their instruments are really working right, would they even be able to do that properly? Yes.
1: I'll give you a big hint. Their heading is working.
2: Their heading's working. They're heading they've been
1: following the correct headings.
2: Well then why are they going away from the airport then?
1: They opted to do that for diagnosing purposes.
2: In case
0: they weren't able to diagnose in time and had to crash, at least it's in the water, not in the city.
1: Yeah, they wanted to be out away from I
2: guess that makes sense.
1: They wanted to go back to the airport, but they didn't want to be around the airport, so they were doing this so that they stayed close to Lima, but also had more time out over the ocean.
0: I want you to remember your question about the ILS because I don't have that in my script, but I do want to go over it.
1: Why they would want
2: to catch the
0: ILS? Why it's not a great idea.
1: We'll talk about it. Oh, okay. 109 a.m. The air traffic controller suggested a different heading to intercept the instrument landing system. The crew acknowledged and repeated that they had no airspeed indication and that they appeared to be flying stabilized at 9,700 feet. The reason they've decided now to go back and start trying for the ILS again is because they're stabilized, supposedly, at 9,700 feet. Which okay. is also
0: what air traffic control is showing. They are also showing 9,700 feet.
1: Yes. The air traffic controller confirmed that they they appeared to be flying at 9,700 feet, according to his radar, and that they were flying at 240 knots, 51 nautical miles from the airport. 1.10 a.m., the flight crew requested altitude information again. The air traffic controller informed them that they still appeared to be flying at 9,700 feet, according to his radar. And he asked what the indication was in the cockpit, and he asked if they had any visual reference to the terrain outside, which they didn't.
2: No, because it's ocean and it's dark.
1: Yep. The crew responded that they had a too-low terrain indication. Literally, that's what it's saying. Too-low terrain. 1.11 a.m. The air traffic controller made another orientation call, telling them their altitude.
0: Ground speed. Yes.
1: And the crew's reply to this was not understood, but was full of noise and alarms. 1.11 Oh. One eleven a.m. and 20 seconds. The plane's left wing had struck the water briefly at 250 knots, and then they were once again airborne. The captain struggled with the controls from the damage to the left wing, and the airplane climbed briefly, but slowly banked 70 degrees to the left and then nosed down before impacting the water 22 seconds after the initial impact with the left wing.
0: While their instruments were still showing them at 9,700 feet.
1: Yep. All communications from the flight ceased, and they disappeared from radar at this point. A search and rescue operation was initiated, and the next morning, wreckage was found 48 nautical miles from the airport in the middle of the ocean. All 70 on board perished in the accident.
2: Okay. So Miranda has her suspicions. Yes, I do. I'll be very disappointed in myself if I'm wrong, but I don't think I'm wrong. Please
0: don't be wrong. (laughs) It'll mess up
2: everything if you're I really you're wrong. don't I think I'm wrong. You just tell me what it is if I'm wrong, but I don't think i have I'm a wrong. lot of faith in you right now.
1: Let me say, keep it general, don't say specific. Well, Does that make sense?
2: Well, to be fair, I think there's... I'm not going to say what it is, but I have a general idea of what it is. Yes. I don't know exactly what happened to this That's okay. to make there it a problem. So
1: I think you're getting on the same Because I
2: don't think it's exactly what happened to the other flight we covered with this. I don't think it's exactly nope. that, but there's correct. a problem with this instrument correct. that's causing we all you are this correct. problem. You are
0: correct. You are on the right track. We will okay. talk about it. <laughs> so proud of you. Okay. This investigation was performed by the Accident Investigation Board of Peru, which is part of the Ministry of Transport, Communications, Housing, and Construction, alongside the Directorate General of Air Transport. Yeah. I don't know the exact go. hierarchy of that. Don't come for me.
2: With the assistance of the... NTSP! Good job! meow, 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 meow,
0: The wreckage was quickly located by the Peruvian Navy, since air traffic control had the flight on radar until it went down, along with the emergency location transmitter sending out the pings from the black boxes. Thank God. Thank God. By the way, those send out for about 30 days. Which it should be
2: extended past 30 days if you ask me.
1: And but some of them are these days, but...
0: We won't get into that now. Also, it was really easy to locate because there was debris floating, along with nine of the deceased. Oh, Ugh. Yeah. Making it very easy to pinpoint the wreckage. That being said, the Peruvian Navy did not have the tools or resources to retrieve the wreckage from the bottom of the ocean.
2: Which, like, you know it crashed in the ocean. Why don't you have the stuff to, like, get it out of the ocean? Okay, this is not
0: like a first world country where we just spend a lot of money on our military to have these kinds of resources. So they called in the country that does, which is the United States. I was going to say, you have the United States helping. Why don't you just have them bring in their stuff? You are correct. The NTSB and the United States Navy were called in to assist with the wreckage. On site, fun fact, the NTSB initially wanted one of the Peruvian investigators to recuse himself from the investigation because the first officer was his nephew.
2: Oh, yeah. I feel like that would be a good thing to do.
0: However, his professionalism and stoicism on the subject allowed him to continue with the rest of the team, and the NTSB was really impressed by him, so...
1: Yeah, he actually didn't let it affect his job at all.
2: Nope. I feel like he would be more inclined to figure out what happened. Yes, I still don't think it's a wise decision. It's not great. I mean, if you think about it in terms of, like, if you're a police officer and your nephew got murdered... You wouldn't want to be the person on that investigation. Right. Yeah. So So if you think about it that way, not not great. great.
0: But the NTSB stands by their decisions, as they did in the Mayday episode when interviewed, so I'm just going to move on. The U.S. Navy sent down robotic systems to locate the black boxes and bring them up first. And those were stored in coolers of fresh water to prevent any oxidation during transport to NTSB headquarters in Washington, D.C. for further analysis at their lab.
1: This is pretty normal. If you ever watch after any accident happens in the ocean, they always put them in a cooler of fresh water. Yep. For the exact same reason. Because,
2: because you, corrosion. Yeah, you don't want yeah. it to be salt water because that's corrosive. But you also don't want it to be air. Right. Because then the salt that's already in there is going to cause a problem. Yeah. Right. It oxidizes.
1: Basic science. They just throw it in a cooler, fresh water, and that maintains it.
2: Science. Now,
0: the CBR is how Nick was able to tell such a vivid story. Obviously. And how investigators had their first and really most vital clue, as well as what led Miranda to know exactly what
2: the problem was. Is it now? Yeah. Is that my cue? Yeah. Is it a pedo tube problem? It is a pedostatic problem. Yes. (laughs) Exactly. I was like, it has something to do with the pedo system. (laughs) You are
0: absolutely correct.
2: The only other time we've talked about something like this is Air France 447. I also talked about it on a Miranda Sode 2, to be fair. Yes. But when the alerts on the speed started going off, I'm like, okay, it's a pedo problem.
0: But it's not just pedo.
1: Specifically, actually, it's not pedo.
0: So, the pitot static system, which there are two words there, it's not just pitot, it's pitot static system, is tied to three of the most basic displays in any aircraft, not just commercial airliners. The altimeter, which reads altitude, the vertical speed display, and the indicated airspeed display. There are two primary components, the pitot tube, which we have talked about, and the static port, hence the term pitot static system. The static port is an air inlet that is flush with the fuselage, nothing sticking out, and it's located somewhere on the fuselage where the airflow is undisturbed. It reads the static or non-moving air pressure around the aircraft. So just like the atmospheric pressure, basically. Right. Right. So basically, there's no air flowing into the static port. Okay. It is just reading the pressure from outside. No airspeed, none of that noise. This information alone tells the altimeter the altitude that the plane is at. So from the air pressure outside, you're able to discern altitude. As that pressure changes, the data is fed to the vertical speed display, which then conveys how quickly the altitude is changing, either increasing or decreasing. So the static port feeds two of those three vital instruments. The last system is the indicated airspeed, which uses both the pitot tube and a static port. I found
2: a a diagram on uh, Wikipedia. I'll put it on the website. Good job. I'm proud of you. So anyone who thinks they're confused about anything we just said, just look at the diagram. I'm not
0: giving you all of the equations that I learned in my fluid dynamics class because that was overwhelming for me when I learned it. So we're just going to chill. The pitot tube, the last part of the pitot-static system, measures the dynamic pressure or the air pressure generated by the speed of the aircraft and compares that to the static pressure from the static port. Together with a lot of calculations, you can discern the aircraft's indicated airspeed or how fast air is flowing over the wing. This is different from the ground speed because the wind can change the indicated airspeed depending on its direction and magnitude. These two components, the pitot tube and the static port, can lead to faulty information if they become blocked for whatever reason. This happened on Air France Flight 447 in episode 37, which is currently our second most popular episode, where, spoiler alert, the pitot tubes became plugged with ice. But in this instance, both altitude and airspeed were suspect, which led investigators to suspect the static ports, not the pitot tubes. So the U.S. Navy deployed their robotic systems to find that portion of the fuselage and made a very serious discovery. The static ports were covered with silver duct tape.
2: Yeah. Uh. What?
0: This is incredibly serious! You can't fly without that information. It's not just commercial aircraft. Like, if you hopped into a Cessna 172 and you had your static ports blocked, you are equally screwed. It's not an over-computerization of aircraft. It's one of the most basic and essential systems to flying.
1: I'll say that it's not entirely impossible to fly and land that airplane, although it's much more likely during the day when you can see everything.
0: When you're over the ocean at night.
1: When they have absolutely zero reference for speed and altitude or anything, because they have literally just pitch black outside the window.
2: Okay, if I remember correctly, and maybe I'm not remembering correctly, they were already getting issues right after takeoff, right? Yep. Yep. So why did they decide to go all the way out there instead of just turning around and landing?
1: Well, the airport's really close to the ocean anyway, so they were pretty much out of the ocean almost right away, within a minute of takeoff. And that was the direction for their normal flight path. So they were sticking to that while they were diagnosing. And then eventually they just didn't want to be over the city in case something went wrong.
2: And was there a problem after V2
1: or with V2 or... It was about exactly the same time that they reached V2 plus 10. Okay.
0: That everything just went to zero. They had nothing. And is that
2: after V1? Yes. They're kay. already off the ground. Okay. Yes.
1: V2 is airborne and at climb speed. Okay. We've already got the gear up.
2: I just want to make it so that I understand, like, the thought process behind it. Mm-hmm. it. Because I get it. it would freak me out, first of all, if I was ever a pilot, which I won't never be a pilot, but if I was a pilot that I'd just taken off and I immediately have problems with speed and altitude. Because then you don't know where you are, you don't know where you're going, and you don't know how fast you're going.
0: Correct. You have little, if any, information. Yeah, I'm trying
2: trying to figure out why they went so far out from the airport instead of just turning around. But I guess I understand if you don't really know what the problem is. I'll talk about that a little bit more. Okay, good, because
0: I don't. So, going back to our original conversation, the duct tape? Yeah, What? (laughs) Why? Investigators came to find out that before the flight left Lima, a crew had come out to clean the aircraft after a bird strike.
2: And they covered the thing with duct tape and they didn't take it off. <laughs> oh, I think I remember. Is this an air disasters episode? It's a Mayday episode. Was it in the first season? Yeah, it's I old. remember this one. It's very old. I, I Clearly, I didn't remember it to the point where I knew what happened immediately, but now I remember. So they had a bird strike and had to repair two fan
0: blades and a hydraulic pump, if I remember correctly. And this particular livery for this aircraft is chrome. So uh, blood and uh, bird guts shows up very well. Yeah. So they decided to polish it. Well, to polish it, you need to cover the static ports. That is normal procedure per the airline. Yep. Not Boeing. Oh, ugh. I won't get into that. But they cover the static port so they don't get
2: damaged while you're polishing and then you are supposed to remove the tape another question again maybe a stupid question probably not but they switched aircraft don't the pilots still have to do a walk around yes Yes. give me a second okay
0: (laughs) how did no one catch this huge breach in standard operating procedures well there's a couple of reasons, most of them aggravating The maintenance crew did not use a high visibility colored tape in a bright color. Yeah, like why have the same colored duct tape as
2: the fuselage?
0: Not a great idea. Not great. Mm -hmm. Blends in easily. No one catches it. So uh, maintenance crew didn't catch it. The quality control staff did not stick around to witness the end of the
2: cleaning. Well, that's just poor management. I mean, come on.
0: The maintenance supervisor was out sick and the job was being filled by a line mechanic who did the pre-flight visual inspection incorrectly. The tape was also not found during the flight crew's walk-around, which for some reason was performed by the captain and not the first officer, as was standard operating procedure. He can still do it! It's just weird, and he didn't catch it either. Now, granted, this static port is like 15 to 17 feet in the air.
2: Yes, and I understand, like, especially on a 57, it's hard to see, but I feel like it's a hole. Yeah. You should see a hole. And if you don't see a hole... If you see duct tape... Even if it's so far up and it it matches the livery so well that you can't tell, but if you know there should be a hole there and there's not a hole there, I feel like it should be like, that seems a little... Like, something's off. Yes. And I don't know what it is. And that's when you are, like, contact ground and be like, was there any maintenance done on the aircraft?
1: I can still kind of understand why. Because we're talking about ports that are... Two little tiny holes drilled right in the middle Yeah, I mean, I get get why they would miss it. 15 or 17 feet up at night in the dark.
2: I understand why they would miss it. I'm not saying I don't understand that. I'm just saying after so many people check
1: it, you should be
2: like... "Mm, At least
1: one of them you would have thought would have seen it.
2: More of my issue was why didn't you
0: use the tape you're supposed to? Like, bright red.
2: Yeah, that's a big problem. So that guy
0: who covered the static ports, cleaned the plane, and then did not remove the tape he wasn't supposed to be using anyway, was uh, fired Yeah, and jailed. Yeah.
1: Yeah, he was actually jailed. He was
2: charged with negligence. To be fair, it is negligence. And it killed 70 people. Yeah. I mean, when you put it plainly, it's manslaughter.
1: However, (laughs) they did say that he was not trained. They just threw him into this job. then that's the
2: company's problem. Right.
1: That's what a lot of people have problem with, jailing him, because he was never trained.
2: Also, this is in uh, this part of the world. He was making $2 an hour. Yeah. When you have a person who's not making a lot of money and they're not being trained properly... We'll get more into kind of the legal stuff later.
0: Okay. So, investigators did spend a portion of their report scrutinizing the crew's actions. No, they had not been trained for such a situation. And yes, the situation was very overwhelming and confusing. There were tons of alarms going off. Many were not able to be silenced as they were vital systems. And many were contradictory. How can you have an overspeed warning and a and stall warning, warning at, at, at the same, same time.
2: time?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: How can you be going too fast and too, too slow?
1: slow.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, I feel like that should have triggered, like, we have a a static system pedo problem. Like, something something with that system. See, you
1: saying that is exactly what everybody else thought?
0: Yes. Now, I will go along the lines of what the Mayday episode said, which is that it is really easy to play Monday morning quarterback and say, why didn't you just realize you were not in that situation? No,
2: I'm not saying that... I am not putting this on the crew at all. They did their best with what they had. They put it on the crew a little bit. They did. And to be fair, would I have thought of going that far out from the airport? No. Am I a pilot? No. And to be fair, Air France 447 happened after this. Yes. Yes. And so we, having an understanding of how the pedostatic system works, yes. I'm like, yeah, if you're having an overspeed warning, and a stall warning, you clearly have something wrong with speed indication. And
0: altitude, thank you, too.
2: So then it's like, okay, maybe it's something with the pitot tubes or the static system or whatever. But they might not have the training to understand what was going on. And it was also, they had 70 people on board, and they were trying to figure and, 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 and. So,
0: all of that being said, yes, we completely count all of that. They had a lot working against them. However, there are some things they could have done To be better about this. It was clear that the crew knew they had issues with the altimeter and airspeed readings. The first thing that investigators pointed out was the complete lack of crew resource management. Yeah. During an emergency situation. There was no clear delegation of responsibilities. For example, you fly while I diagnose. This would have relieved some of the incredibly intense workload from at least one pilot so that they could do the number one thing during an emergency.
1: Fly fly the the plane. Instead, they were both trying to do all tasks. Which doesn't work.
0: Nope. The next thing investigators poo-pooed was something I noticed fairly early, but I wasn't in the overwhelming emergency situation. Do you have any other indicators of speed and altitude? Yes. And both were ignored. When the altitude above the ground is less than 2,500 feet, the radio altimeter becomes usable. This is basically echolocation, sending a signal down to the terrain or water and measuring the time it takes to bounce back, and telling you altitude that way. It is in no way tied to the pedostatic system.
2: I remember us talking about that in a different episode. Don't remember Mm -hmm. which one it was, but I do remember it. We've
1: talked about it several times, but yes, they should have known.
2: We know
0: that was working because it is this system that drives the ground proximity warning system to say too low. This was the only alarm that was correct, and it was ignored.
1: The ground proximity warning was correct because it was running off near the radio altimeter, which was so working. they were
2: lower than what they were even indicated. Yeah, yeah well, the so indication was even with wrong. the ATC radar. Okay, let's get into that
0: a little bit. So, ATC, what were they getting on their radar? They were getting whatever was being transponded by
2: the aircraft. Oh. The transponders
1: are tied into the pitot-static system.
2: They also thought they were higher.
1: Yes, they were getting only what the oh. airplane was telling them, except speed because ground
2: speed was accurate. Ground speed, was well, yeah, because that was based the on the radar system itself, not on the aircraft. But right. the- but the altitude was not right because it was the same as the altitude on the aircraft, which is why the GPWS was working and transmitting. So they were way lower than they
0: were ten thousand feet lower than they thought they were. Yes. Yep.
2: Okay, now my answer with the whole GBWS system makes sense. Because yes. I was like, yes. I don't remember that being an issue when we talked because about it's not. Because it. 447. Not. Yeah, not. Because I say, it wasn't. I
0: wish they had the same thoughts as you. They should have listened to the ground proximity warning system because I it was the only warning in the entire cockpit that was correct.
1: When you brought that up earlier, I really wanted to just be like, that's because it's actually working. <laughs> <laughs> but I was trying really hard to bite my tongue. <laughs>
0: Now, the system that could have given them at least some kind of speed was the ground speed system, which gets derived from the inertial reference system, completely independent from the pedostatic static system. This was also shown to be functioning and is always displayed on the attitude directional indicator or ADI. You see it all the time. They ignored that too. They had their speed available in the cockpit. Yep. And didn't use it.
2: They had alternate forms of speed and altitude that they just didn't use. Correct. The crew also
0: disobeyed standing operating procedure in one vital instance. I understand that they knew some of the warnings to be erroneous, but it is standard operating procedure to climb once you hear the GPWS alarm, regardless of the circumstances, and they ignored it.
2: Because to be fair, the worst thing that can happen is you go above where you're supposed to be. Yeah,
1: I mean, you still have to be careful. I, I can understand why they didn't do that. However, they weren't trained. That's the primary problem. But there are a couple of things that could have led to more confusion as they climbed. One, pressurizing the airplane. The airplane That's is true. going to continue to pressurize. However, as soon as it notes a difference between the indicated altitude and the pressure cabin, then it's going to have another alarm added to their chaos.
0: Yeah, I doubt that was part of their thought yes.
1: process. More importantly to that, though, is the fact that they could have gone into a stall. And they already had their stick shakers shaking And, then, for and a and good they part of this.
2: It's, yeah, it's one of those where it's like... It's a whole litany of Would you have been able to tell when you were in a
1: stall? And the reality is, is actually the stall warning was more likely to be correct than the overspeed was. Their stall warning actually at times may have even been correct because the airplane was almost too slow without any flaps.
0: 200 knots is very slow, which is what air traffic control calculated them to be at at one point. Right.
1: At times they were flying two hundred knots. So they may have been too slow. And at times the stall warning actually may have been correct and actually they did prove on the FDR that it was at one point because they dropped seven hundred feet very quickly even though the nose was up. But they dropped down to four thousand feet. That's and probably then, a stall. Yeah, they dropped down to four thousand feet and then they actually held and that was just where they actually were. Was yeah. that 4,000 feet?
2: So when they said they were at 9,000, they were actually at 4,000? When
1: they were at 9,000, they were actually at, like, 500 feet.
2: Like 1,000 feet above the ocean.
1: Yeah, maybe. they were or At old. that point, they were all right, right yeah, above the ocean. There's... That's when they were having the terrain alerts because they were right there.
0: The terrain alert activates at 2,450 feet above the ocean or above the terrain. And the radio altimeter becomes useful at 2,500 feet. So you have 50 feet there where you can have the radio altimeter working. And not have a GPWS alarm going off.
1: And the way to correct that is if you did slow down, put flaps out and landing gear out, then the, it turns off the GPWS because it considers you to be in a landing configuration. Other than it still knows when you're on an approach. Still, that's, a yeah. modern, that's in a modern airplane. In this case, it would have at least done the calculations and said, okay, the airplane's configured for landing and you're below 2,500 feet. That's you're okay. acceptable. You're acceptable. Now,
0: to go back to a previous thing that I did not write in my script, the ILS. Why was that a bad idea? This is not something I think they would have known when deciding to pick the ILS, but 2020 hindsight, here's why an ILS would have been a bad idea. The ILS does feed the aircraft information as far as... Horizontal and vertical configuration to match the glide slope, but it also right. relies on the
2: transponder of the aircraft sending accurate information. And the transponder wasn't working properly because the aircraft wasn't transmitting proper information.
1: Right. They even tried to turn on the autopilot at one point. Well, the auto,
2: yeah, the autopilot wouldn't. Have the autopilot to turn on.
1: definitely didn't work. It
2: said no, thank you. That was another thing that even if they couldn't figure out was a static torpedo p- system problem. If the autopilot won't turn on, there is definitely something wrong where it's like the autopilot's like, "I can't fly this aircraft the way it's configured." Yeah, you need to figure it out. Okay? <laughs> this is your job. This is why you're here. Okay, good luck.
0: Boo. <laughs>
2: yeah, basically,
0: correct. if they had used the ILS, I expect they would have crashed into the city.
2: So I'm glad that never actually happened. Well, it's However, pro- that, that was where they, it was good that they were so far out. Yes. Two. That's... Like, I understand why they did that. That was a very wise decision.
1: That is a big part of why they were out there, is because they didn't want to be over the city. They didn't know what was going on, which they weren't trained to find out. We'll talk about that. And so they were having to do this diagnosis. If they had been trained, they wouldn't have had to diagnose anything. And actually, they probably could have gone right back to the airport. But two... And this is something that actually one of the investigators, I think, mentioned in the Mayday episode or something, is that they had just taken off with enough fuel to reach Santiago, so they had enough fuel to last, like, six hours, seven hours. So they had plenty of time to put the airplane in a climb attitude and try to diagnose some of the warnings, figure out what's going on, and then attempt to reapproach. But instead, they were both handling all tasks... And
0: reading the same checklist over and over, Yeah, reading, reading the flight manual over and over and
1: not coming up with anything and having really unproductive conversations about it, basically, without actually flying the airplane.
2: Well, and then my, my thought goes to what checklist were they reading? Because I'm sure that there is a checklist for when you lose altitude and speed information.
1: Well, that was actually a point of discussion in the episode is the fact that there isn't specifically a checklist for all of the conditions they had. Yeah. Overspeed and stall don't exist in any checklist.
2: That does not happen. I feel like, though, there (laughs) should be a checklist for when you lose altitude and speed indications. They
1: do, but that usually, like I said, is trained as a pedostatic failure. They weren't trained for that.
0: My Monday morning quarterback actions would have been, again, to put yourself in a slight climb, not huge, but enough that Mm -hmm. you're slightly climbing, and then call operations.
1: Right. Their attitude indicator was correct.
0: Yeah. And be like, hey, I don't know what's happening. Here's all these alarms. Please help me diagnose this. Again, we're not in the cockpit.
2: Nope. This is completely like. To be fair, I would also be panicking, right? Yes, I would be having a panic attack. I would 100% be panicking at this point. And if you ask Brendan, I'm sure he would probably say the same thing being a pilot. Yeah, it's scary. If you don't know what's happening and you can't, and you're not trained to figure out what the problem is. And you can't see. That's the bigger problem. And you don't know
1: which way you're going. They were completely disoriented, crew resource management broke down, and they didn't have any training. That's ultimately what happened. But yes, the the reality is, is that if you had set it up in what is considered a normal cruise climb, where you put it at a certain degree of nose up, and you put it at cruise climb power setting, the airplane would continually climb at cruise climb. Yeah. Which is a low climb. It's not a fast climb. So they could have maintained that, and they would have known the airplane would be safe. So I get that there are some people that say, well, they should have done that, but they weren't trained to do that. And they were trying to diagnose a problem. They had poor crew resource management because they weren't trained properly. It is a lot of, you can't blame them because you don't, you weren't there. You don't know.
2: Well, yeah. When you pull it around and say, well, they weren't trained, then it's like, no, they couldn't have done that because they didn't know that was an
1: option. Right.
2: That being said, we're going to take a break. (laughs) Yeah. Then get into findings and recs where we talk a little bit more about all of that stuff. For sure.
1: Okay, let's do some... Findings! Actually, they're called results. Oh, I thought <laughs> they conclusions! Yeah. No, it's, it's the results section of conclusions.
0: Oh. <laughs> I was not entirely wrong, for the record.
1: No, you weren't entirely wrong, but it's called results.
0: Also, this was a pretty short report, all things considered. Yes.
1: They actually had quite a few findings, but we're not going to go into all of them. There's only a handful I really want to touch on. Oh, do you on. go
0: over the uh, section two of the
1: conclusions? No, probably not. I don't know. Hold on.
0: The one entitled Previous Accident?
1: I figured we would just talk about that. Okay. (laughs) Because it kind of comes up throughout here. So they hit on the captain as one whole section, and I'm going to go into that, because really, that talks more about what really happened? So they found that the pilot, Eric Schreiber, made a series of errors and omissions. That's what's written, by the way. I'm reading all this directly from the report. It's pretty informal. This one, I don't know, there's some weird just, like, it's not entirely wrong or bad. There's just sometimes some words I'm like, wow, you wouldn't just write that into a report, a formal report. Like, that just seems really conversational. Anyways, the pilot, Eric Schreiber, made a series of errors and omissions, which generated factors liable to lead to the accident, which caused an emergency situation known as sea C-fit. Controlled, controlled flight into, into terrain. terrain. Culminating.
0: Which, by the way, this was controlled flight into water. water.
1: Culminating in the accident in the sea off the coast of Lima Department. That is what's written. Department. (laughs) This is translated. Yep, it is. To all of this must be added the following. The staff who carried out the polishing work on the lower part of the aircraft on the basis of the evidence found did not remove the protective adhesive tape when they had finished their work, which meant that the static ports were covered.
2: Yeah, that's just a boo-boo on the maintenance crew. boo
1: -boo -boo boo-boo, boo-boo. They found that there was a possible failure of the quality control staff... In not supervising the end of the work done.
2: Possible. See, Uh again,
1: there's that kind of like conversational thing. But they're saying that they didn't check the work when they were finished.
0: The way I picture it, the way the report was written was they were like, Ah, you guys got this. I'm gonna go have a smoke or some crap like that.
1: Yeah. So I'm not going to fully read the next couple because it's all kind of the same thing. The first one was blaming the people who did the work. The guy who put the tape on.
0: Yep. that poor soul, that yes. poor guy who makes $2 an hour who probably had no idea of the extent and of the had no training,
1: didn't know what he was actions. doing, but that was what he and was no told to do. And no one checked his work. Well, that's what's next. So then quality control didn't check, and then they say the supervisor didn't check, and then the crew didn't check. The supervisor was replaced, that's why. He was ill. But then the flight crew didn't. Check.
2: But when you have someone out that's a supervisor, you should have a backup supervisor. No, they just threw in an average old mechanic. Yeah, you shouldn't do that. If there's a supervisor, there should be a backup supervisor in case someone gets sick that can come in and check people's work. Right. Because when you have someone who's never done supervisory duties before, they're not going to know what they're doing and they're not going to check stuff properly.
1: Right. Right. They found that there was evidence of tunnel vision and mental confusion on the part of the technical crew. So what this actually is saying, because this is just written wrong, is there's evidence of fixation and disorientation.
0: I would support the disorientation. The fixation, I kind of have a problem with because they weren't fixated on any specific things, but rather were overwhelmed.
1: They were overwhelmed because they were both trying to do all things.
0: So I would even go so far as to say it's the opposite of fixation. It was like their attention was spread so thin. Yes. Which I guess is fixation in its own way?
1: Heavily ADD-laden flight. Anyways.
0: Like, induced ADD, not natural. Like me.
1: Yes. They found that there was a lack of specific training to recognize the problem which arose. So again, with the training thing. They just didn't have the training.
0: I'm assuming they do now.
1: Yes! Also, Peru doesn't exist anymore.
0: Oh, we'll get into that. <laughs>
1: We found that on this flight in particular, the co-pilot, Mr. David Fernandez Revorero, cooperated adequately with the pilot in command, or the captain, until unable to concentrate in order to recognize the failures and adequate solutions because of the confusion factors based on erroneous information, which were caused by the problems with the static ports and the lack of reliable information. He did not take the most suitable and correct decision to rectify the situation, which led to certain actions and decisions because of the following. And then they list out all these reasons basically why he was distracted from performing one set of duties, which really just breaks down into crew resource management.
2: There wasn't any division of labor. Like there wasn't like the captain should have or the first officer should have. I shouldn't say either or. it goes My aircraft. My aircraft, you figure out what the hell's going on.
1: It goes that far, but it also goes into, they they put it, he was not convincing enough to advise the pilot to follow a basis. So really what that means is he was not putting himself in a position to fly the airplane when the captain wasn't was disoriented so when he noted that he believed that the airplane was stalling because the stick shaker was going off he wasn't putting his foot down and saying we need to climb yeah he was saying, look, I think it's actually a stall, but maybe, and the captain's like, no, 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 we're overspeeding. It's overspeeding. The airplane is overspeeding. They were going back and forth about this for a solid couple minutes. And that is why they're saying he's not, quote unquote, convincing enough. It's not the way I would put it. The crew service management was just broken down so much that he didn't have any say in the operation of the airplane.
2: Which isn't great. Because and neither did the
1: captain, quite frankly. Yeah. Neither one of them did.
2: Even if they had the discussion of, I think we're overspeeding, no, I think we're stalling. That's when you call ATC and go, hey, we're having problems determining what's happening here. Can you help us determine our airspeed?
1: Right, exactly.
2: And then from there, figure out, no, we're really stalling. No, we're really overspeeding. No, the airplane's not giving us accurate information. We need to figure out what's going on.
1: Right. So I skip over a bunch of stuff here, but they do have the section about the previous accident, which we'll bring up here, just as a thing, because it is a thing. This was a German charter flight. In the Caribbean.
0: Bergen Air. Bergen
1: Air. Yeah. There was a Bergen Air flight just nine months prior. Okay. So anyways. Same aircraft. So the whole reason they bring up this part of the, the report is because this previous accident was the almost exact same thing. Yep. And it killed a lot more people
2: crashed into the sea following instrument failure and stall. It was found that one of the airspeed indications of the Boeing 757-200 was not working properly due to a mud dapper wasp having made a nest in the pitot tube. And it wasn't checked. That's terrible. Yes. That's horrifying.
1: It's rough to say that that one was caused by a wasp. Yeah,
0: Anyways. mother nature's like screw you.
1: So anyways, point being is this exact same thing basically already happened. And there was a service bulletin out.
0: Issued regarding processes and procedures regarding the pedostatic system. And Aero Peru had not yet implemented them.
1: Including the tape thing. Bruh. Uh Uh-huh. So this is where, and we'll talk about this more in a bit, but this is where I feel that Boeing has nothing to do with this. And I feel like they wrongfully took blame. But we'll get into get into that probable guys
0: in accordance with the facts presented above the analyses performed and the conclusions set out this aviation accident investigation board has determined that the probable cause of the aviation accident which befell the boeing 757 aircraft with registration november 5-2 alpha whiskey on the 2nd of november 1996 are as follows that was
1: really formal thank you (laughs) that's the only thing really formal
0: probable principal cause Error of the maintenance staff, including the crew. It can be deduced from the investigation carried out that the maintenance staff did not remove the protective adhesive tape from the static ports. This tape was not detected during the various phases of the aircraft's release to the line mechanic. It's transfer to the passenger boarding apron and lastly, the inspection by the crew responsible for the flight, the walk around or pre-flight check, which was carried out by the pilot in command, Eric Schreiber, according to the mechanic responsible for the aircraft on the day of the accident. Contributing causes. One, personal error of the crew. The pilot in command, Mr. Eric Schreiber Ladron de Guevara, made a personal error by not complying with the procedure for GPWS alarms and not noticing the readings of the radio altimeters in order to discard everything which he believed to be fictitious. Two, personal error including the crew. The co-pilot, Mr. David Fernandez Revoredo, Made a personal error by not being more insistent, assertive, and convincing in alerting the pilot in command much more emphatically to the ground proximity alarms.
1: Assertive is probably a better word for all of that than convincing. Like yes. You're not trying to convince him. No, you are trying
2: to be more assertive.
1: Assertive with what's actually going on.
2: It's translated.
1: Yes, I know. What point being? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's and just certain words
0: have different connotations in other languages. So yes.
1: so that sums that up. So now let's do some recommendations. And safety actions.
0: I want to go through safety actions real quick. So, as we mentioned before, we happen to have an A319 slash A320 quick reference checklist and handbook. In the emergency quick reference checklist, there is a section called Airspeed Unreliable.
1: All on its own right there. That's enough.
0: First step before the steps. Land as
2: soon as possible. Yeah, if you can't figure out your airspeed, please get your ass on the ground. Thanks. Autopilot, off. Autothrust, off. These both turn themselves off in this instance?
1: Yeah, and actually they probably would on the E322.
0: Flight directors, off. Now, the part that we spoke of earlier. Level flight, pitch 2.5 degrees and 80% engine speed. Which
2: means a steady climb. Steady climb. Yep. Make sure you're not going to hit anything.
0: And then it says refer to the giant handbook.
1: The QRH. We have. The quick reference handbook. <laughs> which which is, is not
0: very quick. It is huge. It's giant. I found it. It's fine. To be okay.
1: fair, if you've ever seen the actual operating manuals for an airplane, they're like five binders usually, and they're like stacked like this, which are usually in the airplane.
0: So this is not a short checklist. Uh, it is several pages. But they have different steps for, are, do you want to climb? You can do that. Here's how to do that. When you're at a safe altitude, do these things. Figure it out. When stabilized, here's all these other things to do to start diagnosing. One of the steps is entitled, If Pedostatic System Icing or Blockage is Suspected, here's all the things you should do. So there's a whole diagnostic section. And eventually, please
2: land your aircraft. Yes. And to
1: be fair, there's probably something like this on the 757, but they weren't trained on what exactly to look for.
2: Yeah, if you weren't trained to know that it might be a pedostatic problem, then you would not know how to fix that problem. To
1: be fair, they didn't know all these things. The airspeed and the altitude should have given that away, but they were so fixated on the fact that they were also getting rudder trim warnings and the wind shear alert. Yeah. And so they're getting all these weird indications.
0: I I think the NTSB investigator said at one point they were getting 7 to 8 warnings, most of them contradicting each other.
1: But the worst part about this is that almost none of them were anything you could silence. Just, yeah, silence or disengage. So they had all of these going off in the cockpit basically for the entire half an hour they were flying.
2: You know, all of that noise going on at the same time. It's overwhelming.
1: It's really overwhelming.
2: At one point it needs to be like, okay, what do we really have here? What, what can is we reliable? work off of? How do we fix the problem or figure out what the problem is?
0: And I feel if they had more specifically crew resource management training, they would have been able to discern, okay, we have ground speed, we have radio altimeter. What can we do with that? But they never had that opportunity.
1: Right. So now let's talk about some recommendations. They recommend familiarizing crews with specific emergencies involving erroneous speed indications and design a procedure for flying with erroneous or no altitude indications. Pretty straightforward. I recommend designing eye-catching covers for protecting the static ports when maintenance and polish work is done on an aircraft.
0: Yay for translations. I would like to translate <laughs> that instead to high visibility.
1: Yes, eye-catching is not... That's really conversational.
2: Well, I feel like, especially because of how their livery was, if their livery was not chrome, then if you had a white livery...
1: This is why a lot of airplanes are white these days. Yes,
2: and you had gray duct tape, you'd be like, that's duct tape.
1: <laughs> yes, however, that said, they didn't have any specifically designed remove-before-flight
2: like port
1: or tape. covers for these, for the 757. Yet? Personally, if it yet. was
0: me, I would have done like electric
2: hot pink
1: yeah, tape. Or
2: yellow, or green, or something eye-catching that your eye gets to it, and you're like, that shouldn't be there.
1: Of course. Nowadays, they have things like that but more importantly they would have the remove before flight covers the covers yeah which you would put in and then they have a red flag that blows around in the wind that says remove before flight and gets your attention when that thing's blowing around they recommend making the crew aware that it is mandatory to follow the evasive procedures in response to the gpws terrain alarms and conduct practical sessions in flight simulators so train them on the ws stuff and make sure that when the gpws alarm goes off they're always taking evasive action To climb away.
2: Well, and they understand that it's not based off of the pedostatic system.
1: Right. That's something they didn't understand was that the system was separate from the pedostatic system. Right. They didn't ever figure out that the pedostatic system was what was failing.
2: No. To be fair, they never got that far. But even if so, knowing that the GPWS, when it's going off and you're having altitude and speed alert problems, right, that that is probably correct and you should follow what that's telling you. Yes. You are too low, you are too close to the ground, you need to climb. Yeah. In some way. Right. Even if it's a steady climb, climb.
1: Right, exactly. They recommend that there must be better use and observation of and reliance on the radio altimeter. Which in these days, actually, the radio altimeter can go a lot higher than 2,500 feet on a lot of airplanes. And that would have been really helpful for them if they had understood how the radio altimeter in that airplane worked. And that they could have relied on it a little bit. Because at that point, if they knew they were over the ocean, they could have put themselves down at 2,500 feet altimeter, radio altimeter, and been safe.
0: I wonder if they even knew that 2,500 was the magic number. They
1: probably didn't. The fact that they didn't even look at the radio altimeter tells me probably not.
0: Now that I know that, I will remember that kind of crap.
1: Yeah. But But like I said, on most airplanes these days, it can also go much higher. So radio altimeters have become a lot more accurate and usable.
0: Yes, but more to my point is, I have now been quote-unquote trained.
1: Yes, you're aware so of it. I'm,
0: I am aware of that specific number, worst case scenario.
2: Or aware that if you're having altitude problems, that you can go down to that altitude and the radio altimeter will start working. Yes.
1: yes. Now, to Aeroperu's maintenance service specifically, they recommend implementing a better quality control system.
2: No sh**! Sherlock <laughs> oh my god the fact that no one checked anybody's work and no one caught that this was a problem is a huge issue yep the fact that we have multiple checks in place on purpose yep. and the fact that the quality control person left. Walked away. Yep. Before it was even completed. And that there wasn't an actual supervisor on duty. I mean, the captain shouldn't have to catch these things. It should no. be caught before the captain has to get there, but right?
1: But he's also the but last. he's
2: also the last line of defense or whoever's right. walking. it's not. It doesn't have to be the captain. Whoever's walking out the outside of the airplane, right?
1: I will say that he is still the most important piece of that puzzle because he has final decision on the safety better. Of taking
2: off, yes. You're, I agree, 100%. But it shouldn't have to get there. It should have been caught before it got to the captain right. or the first officer. And his job was really inhibited because it's silver duct tape against chrome. And it's at night. high up at night. Yeah, you're not going to be able to see it that well. Right. Unless you have a flashlight and you're looking for Which, it. Which, I mean...
1: They did, but they, they just are. said he didn't.
2: If you're not looking down. for it, you're not going to catch it.
1: They recommend carrying out better documented pre-flight checks. At present, the static ports are not specifically mentioned at the time. That is. Whoa. Yeah, so it wasn't on their pre-flight checks.
0: That's And crap. it should be.
1: Yeah, and that's, of course, needless to say, one of the most important things.
0: Nah, really? Yeah. You don't say.
1: The pedo-static system You know, is now
0: that I think about it, where is part. the static port on a 172? Say that we needed to do that again.
1: It's usually behind the passenger cabin. Thank you. On the side. I, I know where
2: the, the pedo-tube is.
1: I know where it is on this. Serious. Because you used to have cleaner it all the time. They recommend selecting higher quality technical staff with continued training and creation of incentives for staff to perform more effectively in the interest of operational safety. I didn't know about the incentives I don't thing.
2: Know. Yeah, the incentives, I'm like, eh. that's
1: Although, I mean, usually as a company, like, your benefits are the incentives. But they need to pick trained people and make sure that from there they maintain training. Yeah. And get trained.
2: Make sure your people are trained. I think that's the big problem, is training. Not that they should have an incentive to stay trained, but that they are trained by the company and stay trained.
1: They recommend monitoring the manufacturer's standards and recommendations and comply strictly with the future recommendations issued as a consequence of this accident. This is more pointing the finger at airproof for not complying with Boeing's safety bulletin from Bergen Air. The fact that they didn't follow those previously is like saying, okay, anything that happens from now on, you need to do now.
2: Immediately. <laughs>
1: Like that's why it's there.
2: That's the whole point.
1: They recommend implementing regulations for flights after maintenance in relation to polishing, painting, or other similar work. That just seems dumb. I mean, there already probably was, and there is now. For they sure. just didn't
2: follow it. They didn't check to make sure they had taken off the tape from the the static tubes.
1: Yep. Then they have a whole segment that's entirely aimed at the air traffic controllers, and I'm going to pretty much skip over that whole thing, but simplify and say that they think that there should be more training for the air traffic controllers. Make sure the air traffic controllers know what on their radar is coming from the airplane and what is coming from the radar system itself, because the air traffic controller didn't know that the speed was coming from the radar, but the altitude was coming from the airplane. Yeah. And then on top of that, he didn't know how to handle an airplane in a situation like this. He didn't know how to help them, and he didn't know that this could be a problem with the airplane.
2: To be fair, air traffic controllers have so much stuff that they have to do that I feel like making them understand this issue with a specific aircraft or that this could be a problem, I mean, I feel like that's just a lot to get them to do. Yes. I, I think now, like me knowing this, like if they, if I were an air traffic controller and they told me they were having altitude and speed problems, yeah. I'd be like, you think it's pitot static system problem or something, I right. guess. Well, but that's
1: kind of how it like is. Generically,
2: in... but not yes. in any specifics because they have so much other training and so many other aircrafts they have to take care of.
1: Yes. And this is true. And I love the fact that one of these that I'm, again, I'm skipping over these, but they do have CRM in here, but it's not crew resource management. It's controller resource management. Oh,
0: dear Lord. (laughs) Everyone needs to manage their resources. We were talking with one of our listeners, uh, Kalen, who has been on the podcast, and he was talking about bridge resource management on the ship that blocked up the Suez Canal. Yes.
1: Now, to Boeing, they recommend implementing systems which avoid conflicting or contradictory alarms, such as overspeed and stick shaker, being activated at the same time. Nowadays, these systems, when the airplane believes that something's wrong with this... And this goes along with one of these other recommendations, is that instead of giving you both those warnings, it would just say, hey, something's wrong with the pedostatic system, period. Yep. It wouldn't give you an overspeed or a stall stall warning because it would know all on its own that something was way off about the pedostatic system. And then it would just say pedostatic system fail, basically. That makes sense. So that's kind of along the lines of the next one, which is... Uh, They recommend introducing a caution alert when the speed and altitude are not reliable on the EICAS screen, which is their computerized indication screen. So that is basically summing up that. I mean, they should have just had one alert for the whole pedostatic system and not eight for all the different things that went wrong.
2: Yes, to be fair, this hadn't really happened before. I mean, it happened on the Bergen Air Kind yes. of, because that was a PTO two problem, not well, a static system problem. But It had
1: happened before, but on the seven fifty seven, which was a much newer airplane at the time and was really electrically adept, <laughs> that these new systems could have been a lot smarter, as they were, and yeah. could have detected these like as detected a that it
2: was a pedostatic static system problem instead yeah. of saying you're overspeeding. No, you're stalling no, this is a problem, 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 no. Make it one thing to say, hey, your pedostatic system is not accurate, and just leave it at that.
1: They recommend design- designing a procedure with all the steps and actions to be followed in the event of a total failure of the dynamic and static instruments to be included in the QRH. Basically, that exists.
0: Yep. Can confirm.
1: They recommend advising airlines for the establishment of specific guidance to the problem of static port blockages. This is just really training. Yeah. Training, yep. That's about it. And then I didn't highlight any other recommendations.
0: So here is something that I read about. I acknowledge that I'm not citing anything here because I don't remember where I read it, but I know that this is... In existence now, Miranda can probably find it if she really put in the effort. I don't blame her if she doesn't. There now exist in unpressurized aircraft such as general aviation aircraft. They have a backup static port inside the cabin. So if for whatever reason you suspect that your static port is unreliable, you can use the one that is in the unpressurized cabin, meaning this will not work in commercial aviation.
1: Right, because it's pressurized. In an unpressurized situation, it can do some things and it probably still won't do it perfectly.
0: No, it did say that it would be a couple hundred feet unreliable, but it would at least put you on the same, like, relative flight level.
1: Yeah, And no, that's fair. But that's specifically talking about the static system. We still have all the problems with the pedo system.
0: Yes, but in this instance, static was the issue. Yep. And so here is a potential mitigation for relatively smaller aircraft.
1: Yep. So now let's talk about this whole litigation portion okay of the I'm, lawsuit
0: i'm going to read this directly from the wikipedia page because we are not legal analysts or experts and neither is
1: wikipedia but we're not going to put this on ourselves.
0: it's on wikipedia there are citations on wikipedia go look at wikipedia Mike Aidson, an American attorney, represented 41 passengers and crew in a lawsuit contending that the aircraft manufacturer Boeing bore responsibility for the disaster, as the company ought to have foreseen the misuse of its products. What?
1: This is actually a possible legal loophole in a lot of company products from around the world. The fact that misuse of your product, you can be held liable for if you don't note that it can be misused.
0: The suit was filed against Boeing in federal court in Miami in May 1997. According to the complaint, the flight deck errors were caused by careless maintenance by Aero Peru and negligence and defective design by Boeing. Boeing argued that it was not at fault and that responsibility for the aircraft lay with the employee who did not remove the tape from the static ports and the aircraft's pilot for not noticing the tape still applied by visual check. Richard Rodriguez of the NTSB said that it was understandable that Captain Schreiber did not find the tape because the maintenance worker had used duct tape instead of the brightly colored tape that he was supposed to use. In addition, Rodriguez said that the pitot static ports were high above the ground, meaning that Schreiber could not have seen the tape against the fuselage. After extensive litigation, the parties agreed to transfer the case against Boeing and Air Peru to an international arbitration in Santiago for a determination of the damages. The defendants agreed to not contest liability in Chile. On December 13, 1999, family members of the flight's passengers received one of the largest compensations. compensations stemming from an aviation accident outside the United States aboard a non-U.S. carrier, averaging nearly $1 million per victim. Aidson stated that the manner of the crash resulting in the passengers drowning was responsible for the large settlements. Now, this was spoken of in the Mayday episode. They say that the reason that the victims' families got so much money was because the victims were alive at impact and drowned.
1: And I'm not sure Could that they... Could they prove it?
0: If I'm... there is water in their lungs, yes.
1: So, I'm not entirely sure that all of them did survive. Because they still said that the airplane impacted at 250 knots, which is freaking fast.
0: Yes. And it impacted wing first. Which, but that's it it impacted wing first, not fuselage. First. Yes,
1: which could bore some of the impact, but that also usually causes the airplane to cartwheel, much like the Ethiopian.
0: Yes, but then they're only dealing with an impact of what 20 feet if that
1: Sort of yes, except they're dealing with g-forces of the rotation all of a sudden.
0: Yes, but point of the matter is they for the most part drowned
1: yes,
2: which is a horrible death. Yes, of course. Well, especially if the cabin crew, which we didn't, we didn't really talk about any of that, which, cause it wasn't really a factor, but they, if they of... didn't know that they were going to hit the water, there mm. was no time for them to get anything to help them survive. From what I discerned from the cockpit voice recorder transcript portions that I saw, as well as the Mayday episode,
0: the flight crew did not alert the cabin crew to the extent of the situation. Therefore, the cabin was not prepped for an emergency. Cockpit crew didn't know. They thought they were still at 10,000 feet and they were going to make an emergency
2: landing. They had no idea how high up they were.
1: Everybody knew what was going on the moment they struck the water. That was pretty much it. Yeah. Nobody had a clue how high or low they were, and the passengers had no clue that anything was wrong at all. Well,
2: because you also can't see anything. Right. You also look out the window, you see black. Right. After the accident, Peru changed
0: the number of its evening Miami-Lima-Santiago Boeing 757 flight to flight 691. The Flight 603 incident contributed to the eventual demise of Aero-Peru, which was already plagued with financial and management difficulties. Obviously. As a result of the crash of Flight 603 and the large amount of money paid for the settlements, which had aggravated the already existing financial issues even further, Aero-Peru declared bankruptcy and ceased all operations in March of 1999.
1: So only three years later. Not even. Two and a half.
0: Yep. The maintenance employee, who I'm not going to name even though he's named on the Wikipedia page, was convicted in Peru for negligent homicide and given a two-year suspended sentence in 1998. Four other defendants were acquitted. He said he would appeal the ruling claiming that sabotage brought down the plane and that he had removed the adhesive tapes.
1: I think that's the wrong, wrong thing to do on his part.
0: Clearly, there was still tape there, so it's hard to say.
1: I don't think that that's fair. I don't think that it's fair for him to say, hey, I didn't put the tape there. I think he should have said, yes, I put the tape there, but I didn't know any better. Yeah. That would have been a way better argument. He actually probably could have got away with that. He because could have blamed, he wasn't.
0: He could have blamed Air Peru. Anyway, let me continue reading. Yes. Peruvian air accident investigator Guido Fernandez the guy who was the uncle of the co-pilot, criticized the move. He argued that the employee, who was relatively uneducated, had little understanding of what he did and that his supervisors ultimately bore more responsibility for the crash.
1: Yeah, he's on the same page I am. Yep.
0: To this day, it is not known why he used duct tape instead of the brightly colored tape that he was supposed to apply.
1: So, Boeing's part of this. There's several I, reasons why I don't think they should have taken I don't fall.
0: think they should have settled.
1: Number one. There is a sticker right next to the static ports that says do, do not, not cover. cover. It was on the airplane long before this.
2: I feel like that if you have to cover them because you're cleaning. You should have a checklist too. You should have yeah. known that you had to remove the tape before the flight could take off. I don't think that's Boeing's problem. No, I... No. I would say Aero Peru as a company was at fault. Yes. If I
0: personally were a judge and jury and executioner, forgive the term, I would say it's Aero
2: Peru. I would say it was 100% on Aero Peru. 100% because if they had the right (laughs) quality control, then this would have been found and the tape would have been taken off. And it probably would have been found that they didn't use the right tape and he would have been reprimanded anyway.
0: On a much smaller scale.
1: My, yes. other, my other problem with Boeing taking responsibility for this is the fact that in Bergen Air, they already took responsibility by putting out a safety bulletin and saying, fix this problem. Absolutely.
0: They then put it, in a mitigation.
1: Both of those things leave responsibility to me, in my eyes, solely on Aero Agreed. And they went under for it.
0: I mean,
2: yes. So they did Because they ended up paying for the
1: majority it. of it. <laughs> But Boeing Boeing saying that they were at fault too, I think is wrong. I think no, they shouldn't have said I don't think it's
2: Boeing's fault.
1: And I don't think that they thought they were at fault either, but I think when they made the settlement they put most of it on Aero Peru and they said, Look, this is mostly your fault, so you get to pay for most of it. And for Boeing, most of that money was pretty small.
0: I don't have those details, so I can't speak to that.
1: But still, it just it just feels wrong. But Won't go any further with that. If you want, you can
2: tell us your stance on the website. There's a comment section on the website. Or on our social media. Or social media. But I 100% think it was a training problem.
1: Big sticker right next to it says, do not cover. Right there to me. Liability's gone.
2: But like, the technician didn't find it. The quality control didn't find it. The supervisor, quote unquote, who wasn't a supervisor, didn't find it. And then the captain didn't find it. Right. So that's Arrow Peru's problem. Yes. Boeing's not the one who covered the damn holes.
1: Right. But they're claiming that they are at fault because of the misuse of their product.
2: Yeah, that's bullshit. Sorry. It's bullshit. I agree. Okay. Well. That was Aeroproof Flight 603. Good job. I'm so proud of you. We've said it so many times now (laughs) that for me to forget it would be sad. Thank you so much for listening. As always, thank you to our patrons, all of our new and old patrons. And thank you everyone
0: for the huge boost in listenership we've gotten over the past few weeks. Yes, we've why. been
1: cranking out some more listens than normal and then getting five more patrons yes. in the last now, two weeks.
0: I want to update you guys because this is kind of exciting for all of us. From Patreon, we are now making enough to justify potentially having an editor. So one of my former co-workers, Jake, may or may not be editing this episode, but we're now at the point where we can afford to hire an editor for a couple episodes a month. So that is all thanks to you guys. And you're... Con-
2: contributions there we go i know i know how to speak english
1: you keep pushing those contributions to us and we're already starting to look at next equipment so that we can upgrade our sound i i really want dynamic microphones
0: i'm so excited uh we have our eyes on some pretty fancy microphones and a new mixer where people can call in and we can have guests and the
1: reality is they're not that fancy but they're they're fancy, fancy for us. Okay, yeah. it's they're fancy. fancy
2: to me. They're
1: fancy to us. I mean, they would be great. They would be it would be a professional setup in all terms, but it would be it won't be like a studio studio. It'll no, just be No, but it's
2: really you guys facilitating this. Yeah, you so. guys
1: definitely help and that's Thank you amazing.
2: So much. You guys are awesome and am- everyone, not just our patrons, although yeah. our patrons are awesome yes to the max but to
1: everybody else that's listening but everybody
2: you guys are great and awesome and thank you so much for listening
1: you're helping us get more ad opportunities and we're getting listened to by more people because the more you listen the more they listen so
2: thank you thank you and thank you for the nice emails and messages we appreciate them they make us feel like people
1: actually like hearing us warm and fuzzy
0: (laughs) do you know how many times this week i had realization of people like us They like listening to us. They like
1: guys. (laughs) At least 39 of them around the world (laughs) really like us, enough to give us a little bit of money.
2: Thank you so much. Thank Uh, you. Okay. With that being said, make sure you check out the Patreon if you have not already. I realize we say it in every episode, but even if you just contribute at the $2 level, you can also contribute under that. You don't get any benefits, but you can contribute any money that you, could, you would like you could also join a tier binge and then back out yes we understand we that or if you don't really care you can also give us a contribution on anchor if you feel so inclined we had a person for a while that did that and thank you to that person it i don't doesn't, know if they listen anymore it doesn't
1: get you anything at all but it helps us
2: yeah so if you're like totally like anti-patreon which i mean i don't know
1: Whatever. Weird, but okay.
2: We do have hundreds of hours of extra content on Patreon.
1: I did the math. We are more than one for one. Yeah. We have more extra content than we do regular content.
0: Oh, crap.
1: We do one extra thing per month than we do regular content at this point. Especially Actually, if we start doing the mini then we'll be doing far more than one-to-one. Because we do post-episodes for every episode.
2: And post-episodes for the miranda sods And post-episodes for the Miranda-sodes. Episodes for the Miranda-sodes. The right,
1: so with the Miranda-sodes, and you get the two extra. And the blooper reel. And the blooper reel. We're doing far more than one-to-one. There's so much extra content, it's unbelievable.
2: So, check it out. I mean, just see what's included. You can look us up on Patreon. You can. It's on our website, too, if you feel so inclined to check that out www.hardlandingspodcast.com and if you have any questions oh, listener question we forgot see, I said that I'm like, if you have any questions you can always check us out on there we do have a listener question I'm so glad I said that so we didn't forget it
0: quote, hey guys, hope you're all doing okay I was just wondering if you guys are still accepting questions and if so, I would like to ask how emergency slides work as in what inflates them and how long do they take to inflate I don't know Actually, Nick, this is for you.
1: (laughs) I'm even going to have to look this up because I don't remember. I used to know. Do you want to phone a friend? Phone a friend? No, I'm not going to need to phone a friend. It's similar but even more prevalent than your airbag in your car that it uses, like, rocket propellant, basically.
0: Okay, here is an article from Airspace Mag. An escape slide sits inside a carbon fiber pressure cap covered by a casing of material similar to the aircraft interior walls that big square box at the bottom of the airline's interior door. Pushing a lever on the interior door, a large silver bar on early airliner models, smaller handles on later ones, arms the slide mechanism by linking the slide to the door sill. When the lever is in the armed position, opening the door pulls the slide out of its pack. The slide then drops to the correct orientation for inflation to begin.
1: Yeah, so it's I remember some of this in that literally the slide, when it drops out of the, the compartment and down the side of the airplane, that That's basically like a lever. As soon as it flops down, that's when the inflation begins.
0: Slides inflate with an initial boost from a canister of compressed carbon dioxide, or CO2, and nitrogen. The canister provides only about one-third of the volume needed to inflate the slides. The remaining volume is supplied by ambient air channeled into the slide through aspirators. So basically air pumps.
1: Yeah, makes sense.
0: When the inflation mechanism is triggered by a lanyard pulled by the slide as it tumbles from its storage case, so it's yeah. not a lever, it's a it's lanyard. It's a
1: lanyard, yes. I knew that, actually.
0: Gas from the canister accelerates through the aspirators at high speeds, creating a vacuum that sucks ambient air into the aspirators through louvers. Levers? Yeah. When the slide is fully activated, the louvers' levers close. So there you go.
2: So, so it in- keeps the air in the in the slide so it doesn't deflate. Right. I am scanning and I'm assuming this article for you a time. can physically move the levers after everyone's out to deflate Well, the
1: I think what it's talking about might actually be a louver, which is like a valve it's it's a pressure valve when it oh, that when makes it sense. gets enough pressure it just flops shut.
0: Yeah. So this particular article which I am sending to Miranda so that she can put it on our website if I remember.
1: And yes it's not a lever it's a rip cord sorry that's I knew okay. that.
0: I would assume that it's pretty Close to instantaneous.
1: Yeah, it happens very quickly. I mean, if you've ever watched this happen, literally you swing the door open and within a second, that slide will start to inflate and it will inflate, I mean, within seconds. It does not take long at all.
2: I well, it has to because th- that's precious time to where people can get off the aircraft. Yeah,
1: it happens very, very quickly.
2: I am also going to
0: attempt to find an evacuation slide deployment There's on YouTube that, you can, uh, that Miranda can also link on the website. I am putting a lot on Miranda. I acknowledge that.
2: It's really bad because I don't edit these anymore, so I don't remember to put them in there. But if you send them to me, hopefully I'll remember. Because I don't remember what I was supposed to put in there for the next week's episode. Here, here's, cool.
1: a, here's a few.
0: I'm literally watching that same one. uh, Six seconds
2: from the so one we're currently
0: watching. That's
1: a 777. This is a 767. Seven. Like, that's how fast.
0: That one was also six S- seconds.
1: 747. Seven.
0: That was an overwing exit. The yeah. overwing exit seemed to be faster.
1: Yeah, the overwing exits are super fast.
0: I would say on
2: average six seconds. Also, it's, they look like fun bouncy slides, but they're really not oh, fun no, bouncy slides not at all. They are very, made of canvas. They're
1: very durable, and they will hurt and burn Which you really badly. Which is why you should
2: not wear. Uh, you should wear long pants and shoes that will stay on your feet. Do yes. not
0: wear high heels or flip-flops when you are boarding an aircraft or being on an aircraft. Please don't do it.
1: Or if you're going to evacuate, just please get rid of them. Take them off.
0: Wear long pants when you are flying. Do not wear skirts. Do not wear shorts. Don't do any of that crap. You will get burned if you need to evacuate. You never know.
2: It could be like that spirit flight where they had a an engine fire that What's was that? fully containable. We talk about but they had to exit via the, the
1: slides. We talk about all the reasons why you probably won't have to ever get evacuated. But in the event that you do, because it does still happen, you want to be safe. And the reality is, as soon as they decide to evacuate the airplane, they're going to cause some injuries.
0: I'm going to real quickly read the rest of Ash's email because it makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside. <laughs> okay. If you're not accepting questions at the moment, no worries. I love listening to you. I am on my second binge listen after discovering you a couple weeks ago. <laughs> wow. And I wanted to really say I appreciate all the hard work you guys put into the episodes. Second binge?
2: Holy crap. To be Thank fair, you. we got a, a tweet from one of our patrons that's like, I'm on episode 60. He started listening like three weeks ago. And he's on episode, I'm assuming it's a he. Sorry if I'm mixing up your pronouns. They're on episode, what, 69 now? Maybe even past that. And yeah. I'm like, mm-hmm. uh, Wow. <laughs> that's fast. Second binge. I'm like, <laughs> thank, you? <laughs> thank you, thank, thank you, thank you. Seriously. Okay. Now we'll get I'm off. Really off greatly appreciate soap it. Box. Soapbox. Yeah. So we're gonna post episode now. We're gonna do some readings in our post episode. If you want to oh, stay yeah, around for that, right. you gotta be a, at least a five dollar patron. Business class, old grader. Business class, Y'all old do that, that
1: tarot reading.
2: That tarot. If you don't know what that is, we'll explain about it in the post-episode. Thank you so much for listening. We hope everyone has a great week, and you stay safe and stay healthy, and we will catch you all next week. Keep your speed up! Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hardlandings Podcast, and on Twitter at Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review
0: on the platform you are using to listen.
1: If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions.
2: This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo.
1: And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman.
2: Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.